when I was driving in this direction on Friday, uh, the highways in Pennsylvania and Ohio were really clear. It was a really smooth trip. And there was only really one moment um, for a short period of time, maybe 30 or 45 minutes or so, where I started to feel a little bit tired. Do you know when that was? About an hour after lunch. <laughs> I feel your pain, right? <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to just have a 30-second brain break. If you're the kind that needs to stand up or just do a little neck roll or do whatever it is you're going to do, you're going to do that right now. Here's your chance. Go ahead. All right, that's enough of that. <laughs> Our main focus uh, for this next session is in 1 Timothy, but I'd like you to turn to Genesis first, and we'll look briefly at one reference in each book of the Bible to lead up to 1 Timothy. No, that's <laughs> right away some heads were, what? No, I know Brother Tim too well. He'd be rushing the podium. <laughs> Genesis 50. And then we'll turn to 1 Timothy, and I'll make some connection. Genesis 50, uh, the last verse of chapter 49, shows us that Jacob, the father of Joseph, has died. Joseph is weeping in chapter 50, verse 1. And he goes to speak to Pharaoh about bringing his father back for burial. Verse 7, uh, Pharaoh gives him permission. Verse 6, verse 7, So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. I'm going to make reference to just a couple of phrases in those two verses, but turn now to 1 Timothy. Chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes to Timothy, verse 3 we'll read. 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables, and so on. And then verse, uh, chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 14, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Just to make some connections about um, what we have already touched on a little bit already uh, in our studies and in uh, the presentations so far, it might throw us a little bit when we see here in 1 Timothy 3 uh, that we are told here how to behave ourselves, how to conduct ourselves in 
the house of God. In the house of God. And certainly, the letter of 1 Timothy will try to give sort of a, a brief bird's eye overview in the next uh, few minutes. Certainly, this letter addresses how we should behave where, when we're together like this, when we're in a room where we gather together with fellow believers to honor the Lord Jesus, when we are together in that way, and we think, well, it says here, in the house of God. But we've already made it clear, and I just want to use the references in Genesis uh, as a little illustration of what it is that we're speaking about. When we're talking about the house of God, just to use that reference, there was the house of Pharaoh, and there was the house of Joseph. And it doesn't mean, of course, nobody thinks this. In fact, your translation might have even tried to clarify it a little bit by saying household or, or family. Of course, it was the, the people associated with Joseph. And it was the people associated with Pharaoh that went to honor Jacob. It wasn't the house, right? They didn't... Uh, you know, deconstruct a, a, a dwelling place and take it with them. It wasn't the house that went. It was the people that were associated with Joseph or that were associated with Pharaoh even. And the point is, we, the, the, um, the world uses this kind of terminology just as little connections as well, like in, in the monarchy, right? There's the house of Windsor. There's the house of Hanover. You look back in, in history and you can find these different houses and they have character based on sort of the family line. And so just to make an emphasis again on what it is that we're speaking about in this subject, when we're talking about in the house of God, we might, we know, well, the house of God is uh, this, this entity, this unseen house. But sometimes when we read a verse like this, we do sort of have our minds go directly to the times we're meeting together with other Christians. But just as we are always part of the body of Christ, wait, I don't think that's this house falling, is it? <laughs> okay, you let me know if you feel any. You did your renovations recently, right? Is it? Um, just as there is a house uh, that has the character of Joseph, we, this is what we're speaking about. We are always part of the body of Christ. We are always living our lives as the house of God. So when we read a phrase like this, in the house of God, what we're really being taught is we are the house of God. Just as the house of Joseph, Joseph's family was always the house of Joseph. And it had the character of, of Joseph. The house of Pharaoh was not the house of Joseph. So we want to understand, as we look at the order and responsibility, this is how we're developing the subject in this next few minutes, the order and the responsibility of the house of God. If we think of the house of Joseph and the house of Windsor and the house of Pharaoh, not to make equality with these uh, human terms, but just to show the point, we understand that terminology. And we should understand our, our, our own position as in the house of God. We are the house of God. And so when we look at this letter and think about the order and the responsibility that is uh, presented for us here, it's with the idea or the recognition that God gets to say what his house is like. 
we've already spoken about that, touched on that by saying that the Lord Jesus is the son over his house. It is the house that is supposed to have his character. And if it is the house of God, God gets to say what that house should be like. What is the order? What is the responsibility of that house? The fourth presentation that is on our conference schedule is the house of God in the hands of men. And we're going to find that when God does something, he gives it into the hands of people. And so it might sound as if we're touching on that subject already today because we recognize that if the house of God is we, the believers in this era, in this age, it, it has been given into the hands of people. What we're making a distinction between in these subjects is what happens when people get a hold of it or what happens when people do their own thing. But God does things and then he puts them in the perfect design and then he gives that to people. He, he designed a beautiful garden and he put it, uh, he put Adam and Eve in it. He said, Adam, do this. Here's your purpose in this garden. And so he gives it to the hand of Adam and it wasn't long before failure came in. And we could look at all these different ways in which God does things. He generally doesn't do things about which we're spectators, just saying, oh, that's very interesting. He does things that uh, draw us in closer to himself. So that's the meaning of this idea that it's God's design. It's not that people have no responsibility when we're talking about the house of God uh, presented from God's perspective. It's what God wants people to be doing. He gave the instructions of the tabernacle. He put his spirit into those men, uh, Bezalel and Aholiab and others too, who were going to construct these parts of the tabernacle. We have order, we have responsibility, and we want to be responsive to God's design. So we might look at this grand uh, subject, God's design, as kind of the, the over, overall heading of this, of this letter. I'm just going to touch on a few things as we give a little introduction um, to what will become a larger discussion when we have the next uh, Bible study after the break time. So go back to chapter 1. We read this verse in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. And Paul has given this commission, we might say, to Timothy. It's God speaking to Timothy through Paul, indicating what the order and responsibility should be in a local gathering of Christians, the city of Ephesus, where Timothy was serving the Lord. And he is urging Timothy to be very attentive to those who are who, who are meeting together. Charge some that they teach no other doctrine, and so on. The word some is, is one of the key words uh, of this letter. It occurs several times in the second half of the letter. Some were doing this, and some were departing from the faith, and some were doing this, and some have erred by uh, going after riches. And all the sums uh, many of the times the word some is used, it identifies some of these errors that Timothy had to address. Uh, 
But we see in verse 5 this really beautiful uh, intention. The purpose of the commandment, the commandment is Paul's urging to Timothy, that the goal of this urging is love. And I understand grammatically there's three it's this three aspects, a three, a, a, a kind of a three-legged stool um, that would be related to this atmosphere of love. It might look like it's love from a pure heart is one thing, good conscience and sincere faith are the three things together, but it seems grammatically that really it's love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and genuine faith. Now just pause for a moment, imagine the atmosphere of a house where everybody living in the house had that characteristic. What would that be like? That'd be beautiful, right? This is the intention of God's instruction through Paul to Timothy for Timothy's purpose in Ephesus so that Christians would hear the word of the eternal blessed God. He's called that in uh, verse 11, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And if everybody would receive the word of God through this means in their little lifetimes, that's what they would experience. This is what we would experience in our local gatherings of believers if we accept the order and responsibility, these precepts, these principles and guidelines about the order and responsibility of God's house. There's going to be an atmosphere of love. And it's going to be an atmosphere of love that grows out of pure hearts. Hearts that are unmixed with their allegiances and, and intentions and, and perspectives. And a good conscience Conscience is another key word in this letter. It occurs, we have good conscience twice, and also a pure conscience. But then later there's a seared conscience. It's a problem. But love that comes out of a good conscience. It means we see each other, and I know I didn't talk about you behind your back. So I still have a good conscience when I see you. Because there's just this beautiful atmosphere of love and sincere faith, genuine faith that, that informs this, this atmosphere of love. It's what God intends to do for us and through us. There's a little parenthesis about the law, which is being misused among those in, in uh, Ephesus, and then the mercy of God, which Paul has so grandly appreciated personally. It's the answer to law. In this context. And then in verse 18, he comes back to it. Chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience. Faith is another one of these key words, conscience. Having faith and a good conscience. And then he has to get into the fact that there are some who already have been failing. But he renews this charge, he reviews the purpose of this letter. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 are, you might say, the implementation or the operation of how these principles are going to be 
carry it out. And just very briefly to see that it's an, it's an atmosphere not only of love, chapter 1, but also of prayer in chapter 2. An atmosphere of love, an atmosphere of prayer. And this context of chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, they tell us something about the, the reality that the people of Ephesus understand. They understand that they are living in a world, in a particular moment in time, and they see that God is allowing them to be a testimony in that world. And we can see this from the, what they're praying about. They're praying about politics. They're praying about the government that is around them. They're praying about the fact that God desires all men to be saved, in verse 4, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're in recognition that they have not become insulated and isolated. They have not become uh, so enamored of one another that they don't recognize that they're living in a moment in time. We have the opportunity to be the house of God, a dwelling place for God, a, a, a residence where God can be on display in this world through the activities of his people. And then in verses 8 through 15, we find that there is a way for men and women to behave in the house of God. And these um, activities, these characteristics, excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, these characteristics are the opposite of the failings of mankind in the garden. This is just a brief suggestion about why, what, what is happening here. It talks about men praying everywhere. So there's prayer generally in the beginning of the chapter, but in particular, the men are going to be praying because that shows that they depend on their God, the God who is over the house of God. In the garden, when there was failure, God said, as part of the effect of the curse, the man, thank you, I'll take what I can get, thank you. <laughs> the man was going to, as part of the effect of the curse, the man was going to be domineering towards his wife. Meanwhile, Eve, in her failing, she was led astray by the fruit, she was tempted by the fruit that was pleasant to the eyes. And she was going to try to uh, rule over her husband as part of the effects of that curse. And so when, when women are instructed how to behave in the house of God, it removes or it reemphasizes something not related to the uh, view of the eyes. Right? Let your adorning godly women let your adorning not be based on the outward appearance, but let your adorning be that inner self, that inner beauty, which goes along with, verse 10, goes along with godliness. Godliness is another key term, and we'll close with that uh, in a couple minutes. 
men, in response, Adam was going to respond to Eve's failings by being domineering and demanding. He will rule over you. It wasn't supposed to be a, a, a relationship of, uh, I want my way and then I'll rule over you, says the man, to get my way. The men should pray. Men are dependent, and women are uh, receptive to that role. We have the word uh, submission in verse 11. Many other things that are characteristic of uh, that relationship when we recognize that we are part of the house of God, where we are the house of God, the display of that house. Chapter 3 talks about the helpers among God's people. There are those who desire oversight. We have other scriptures which talk about who it is that exercises oversight. You might have the word bishop in chapter 3 and verse 1. If any man desires oversights, those who are going to be helpful, they're, they elsewhere are uh, elders. They are not novices, as we're told here. They are those who have maturity. They elsewhere are uh, indicated as those who have shepherd hearts, shepherd care among the people of God. And then there are deacons who, when they serve, the word deacon uh, includes the word dust, and some have suggested it means kind of like stirring up the dust. They're so active. They're going through the dust. They're, they're leaving, a, 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 leaving the dust behind them because they're so busy in serving. And in serving the Lord, they obtain a great boldness, verse 13, in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. They, they take up a service that has great value those who operate in those capacities. And then we might say from chapters 4 through 6 all the way to the end, we have, if I could say it this way, striving and thriving in Ephesus. Striving and thriving as the house of God in a local setting. I don't mean striving in the sense of, of fighting and arguing. I mean striving like reaching for a goal, being determined. It rhymes with thriving, so that's a little easier to remember, so I'll use that word. But striving and thriving, focused, reaching towards a goal, being attentive. In chapter 4, there are some things that, have, that Timothy is going to be attentive to that need to be addressed. Those who have departed from the faith, those who are apostates, departing from the faith, they have apostatized from the faith. He instructs the brethren in verse 6. He is an example to them in verse 12. And then... There are older believers, there are younger believers, there are various situations that need attention. Chapter 5 talks about them. Chapter 6 talks about the temptations of money. You might say, well, the money, that's my thing, right? When I'm in the house of God, okay, we'll talk about spiritual things, but the money, that's my thing. No, we are, we are the house of God. We have that character. We go out on the sidewalk. We look at our bank statements our heart attitudes towards our possessions are, ought to be a certain way because we are the house of God. It doesn't mean just when we are in the meeting room or meeting with other believers. Verse 20 of chapter 6, read this passage and then go back to chapter 3 to close. Paul says, chapter 6, verse 20, O Timothy, 
Guard what was committed to your trust. And I would just suggest this is the message. Put your name in there. Put your name in there. God intends that we would be uh, responding to the, to the passion of this invitation. Oh, put your name there. Don't forget what I've given you. Respond to it. And go back to chapter 3, verse 15, we already read. But we're told that in verse 16, that the mystery of godliness is great. And I said earlier that godliness is one of the key terms in this book. It used, it's used uh, eight or nine times, I think. And also uh, some references to the ungodly. And this word, you see what the explanation is of the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And we might think that it should have said, great is the mystery of the Godhead, or great is the mystery of the incarnation. But it doesn't say that. It says, great is the mystery of godliness. Godliness is a word that means right living. Another uh, expositor said, it's the secret of right living. Great is the secret of right living. God was manifested in flesh. When was that? When did that take place? When the Lord Jesus came into the world. God himself is seen through the Lord Jesus. But that is the secret for, for all of our right living. The secret of godliness is God on display through a human being. Not to diminish now the Lord Jesus by any means. He's in a class by himself. But the secret of right living is to recognize that God also wants to be on display through us, through his people in this world. Shall I close in prayer? It's three o'clock. Let's commit ourselves to the Lord. We ask our God and Father that you will um, ignite us further with the recognition of those like Moses, as we heard earlier, who were determined to do things in your way and would not be swayed by the invitations of the world to have only partial obedience or a partial response to your holiness and to your dignity and your glory. And we pray that as we have an opportunity to continue on in uh, these uh, studies and discussions together, that you will encourage us to do your things in your way. We appreciate the, the chance to be associated. Why should we, such failing creatures as we are in our own selves, why should we be linked with the glorious name of the Lord Jesus? But you have made us your own, and you have made us your house. And in this metaphor, this explanation or illustration of of this characteristic, we pray that you will help us to appreciate it more and more and to respond to the uh, invitation to honor you through this means. We commit ourselves into your care once again and ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen.